Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the New Evangelicals podcast. All right. On this episode of the podcast, I brought on Mark Charles, who wrote the book, Unsettling Truths. I have a copy of it right here. I'm holding it in my hand. The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. This is a really heartbreaking and essential read for Christians to better understand our history of dehumanization, our history of colonization, our history of mass genocide, and how God was used to justify so many of these things. So I brought him on to talk about the book and about the contents, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. That being said, I want to say, as always, thank you to everyone who continues to share the podcast and recommend it. We continue to grow. It's been a really amazing year. Um, it's already the week of Thanksgiving, um, which means the end of the year is coming, which is wild. So we hit our one-year anniversary on December 1st. So thank you for being here and being with us. If you want to support the show and support the work that we do, you can click the link in our show notes and in our YouTube comment section description thing. And all the money that you donate goes directly to funding the work that we do. I'm now full-time with this, so it goes to funding me personally, also goes to funding new uh, programs we're trying to implement, uh, new um, community conversations, right? new Zoom groups. And especially for 2022, we really want to develop better ways of having the community connect. So thank you to everyone who has given. All right, without further ado, here is my interview with Mark Charles. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by the Amaveo Group. You might be wondering, Tim, who or what is the Amaveo Group? I'm so glad you asked. The Amaveo Group is a nonprofit organization that exists to see broken systems fixed in communities all over the world, including right here in the States. And they are looking for people who want to help. This group works directly with local leaders in their own context in places like Ireland, Mexico, Philadelphia, and Haiti. Now, let's be honest, friends. When many of us think about going to another country and raising money to go, we think about our missions trips as teens with our evangelical church so we could go and quote-unquote preach the gospel, which in many cases meant proselytizing and colonizing and showing them a better and superior way of living, right? Which we do not want to do anymore. This is not what we're talking about. No proselytizing, just straight up help. This is also a way for you to get out of your own bubble and explore different parts of the world and experience the diversity of humanity while also doing good along the way. If you're interested in being a part of this, you can click on the link in our show notes or visit amaveogroup.org. That's A-M-O-V-E-O group.org. Okay, I Mark Charles. Wow, I was telling you before we started recording. Truly an honor. Um, I discovered you for the first time maybe eight months ago. I saw a talk you gave at a church. I was like, "This is fascinating." Then I got your book, Unsettling Truths, and I just had to have you on the show. So thank you for making time. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, Tim. Thanks for having me. And if I could, I'd like to begin just by introducing myself to you and to your audience. Yes. So yate, Mark Charles Yunishia. In our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineals of people, and our identities come from our mother's mother. So my mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and that's why I say loosely translated, it means I'm from the wooden shoe clan, from the Klompen. Okay. And so... Um, my second clan, my father's mother, 
is Tohiglini, which is the waters that flow together. Hmm. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsinbakedina. And then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Totochitni, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I also just want to acknowledge I'm speaking to you today from what's now called Washington, D.C., but these are the traditional lands of the Piscataway. It's the Piscataway who were living here long before Columbus got lost at sea, and they're still here. And so I want to honor the Piscataway as the host peoples of these lands. I want to publicly state how humbled I am to be living on these lands, Mm. and I want to thank them for their stewardships of the land where I'm now living. Thank you for that. Um, quick side note about that. I live in New Jersey, actually, so not too far from you. And there is a town called Piscataway. Now I'm wondering if that's what that is talking about, if that's referring to that. Like, first yeah, time I'm making I'm that sure connection. I'm, I'm sure it's part of that same wow. nation that was that was from these lands down wow. here. Okay. Well, thank you for doing that, introducing yourself. It's helpful. Um, I also saw that you were also running for presidential office um, in 2020. Is that correct? In 2020, I ran an independent campaign for president of the United States. Um, If you go to my website, which is wirelesshogan.com, W-I-R-E-L-E-S-S-H-O-G-A-N, I still have a link to my announcement video on there. Um, I'm quite certain if there was an award for the best presidential announcement video, we would have won. Okay. Um, It's a nine minute video. It goes in depth into the challenges our nation faces from the doctrine of discovery being embedded in our foundations. Mm. And it lays out my vision of what we need to do to address them and what are the key planks of my platform that I was proposing that we do to to, um, resolve some of these challenges. Mm. The theme of my campaign was I want to build an, I wanted to build a nation where we, the people Mm. actually meant all the people. Mm. And this meant addressing our Declaration of Independence, which calls Native savages, our Constitution, which excludes women, counts Natives, our Africans as three-fifths and excludes Natives, as well as Supreme Court case precedent, which uses the doctrine of discovery to this day as the legal precedent for land titles. Hmm. So, so it, was a, it was a fascinating, it was a great endeavor. Yes. Um, there's a good chance I'll probably run again at some point. And um, I think, you know, the whole goal, the, the, the primary goal of my campaign, yeah. the key plank of my platform was I truly believe, and the reason why is what we're going to be talking about in this show, Yeah. but I believe the United States of America needs a national dialogue on race, gender, and class. Mm-hmm. It's a conversation I would put on par with the truth and the reconciliation commissions that happened in South Africa, in Rwanda, and in Canada. I, however, would not call ours truth and reconciliation because that implies there was a previous harmony, which mm-hmm. is not accurate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I would call ours truth and conciliation. Mm-hmm. And I was so convinced we needed it. I ran for president to try and bring that conversation to the forefront of our nation's wow. understanding. Wow. Well, there's a lot I want to dig into on all of that. Before we do, why don't you give us kind of your background? How did you grow up? You know, what kind of got you from where you were growing up to where you are now? And then we'll dig into some of this great stuff. Yeah. So as you heard, my I'm the mother, I'm the son of a mother of Dutch American heritage and a mm. father of Navajo heritage. And I grew up in what I would call a Dutch ghetto mm. just off of the Navajo reservation. And so the Christian Reformed Church began a ministry, a a mission to Navajo people 
not long after Abraham Lincoln ethnically cleansed the Southwest. Um, mm. This was in the early 1900s. Mm. And um, so about 40 years after Abraham Lincoln ethnically cleansed those lands. And um, they started a boarding school. Now, again, the purpose of these boarding schools was to kill the Indian to save the man, to forcibly assimilate natives mm. to uh, um, American culture. Mm. And uh, my grandparents, who were converted to Christianity in the boarding schools, they were working at Rehoboth, which was the mission of the CRC, as translators for the early, for some of the missionaries. This is in 1940s, um, 1950s, maybe. And uh, my, my, so my father had just gone out of the Marines and he was living back with his parents and he was uh, doing some teaching and coaching at the school. And my mother, who was, grew up in Denver, um, was on her way to Africa to be a missionary nurse. And she had a, lay, a stopover at Rehoboth and was there for a year or so, I think. And she met my father, they started dating, ended up getting married and she never made it to Africa. So mm. she stayed in the Southwest uh, her entire life. My father and her still live there. Hmm. And so I grew up in that mission compound. Hmm. I was there when Rehoboth was transitioning from being a boarding school to a day school. Hmm. And so I was there as a day school student. And there were other Native peoples, Native students there as boarding school students. And realized even in doing some research uh, on the book and other things about the Dr. Discovery that, that oftentimes their experience, the boarding school students' experience was vastly different than the experience I had there as a day school student. Mm. And uh, so I, I grew up in that area, in that environment, went off to college, mm -hmm. studied UCLA, got involved with InterVarsity. Mm. And it was in InterVarsity where I, I really began to own my faith. Mm -hmm. I grew up as a Christian. I grew up in a, a fairly evangelical church, the Christian Reformed Church, fairly conservative. I mm -hmm. wouldn't call myself a Reformed uh, Christian, but I, I definitely grew up in that environment. Mm -hmm. But it was in college I really began to own my faith. Mm -hmm. And then um, a few years after college, I got married. Uh, my wife and I lived in Southern California for about a year, and then we moved back to New Mexico. And I received my license to exhort from the Christian Reformed Church. I love that term. <laughs> I'm, I'm not an ordained pastor. I have a license to exhort, okay. which means I can't preach. I can exhort. I don't know the difference besides the spelling. Right. <laughs> no, um, it's, it's, that's what it is. Okay. And this so what it is. I had my license to exhort. All right. right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm going around the reservation exhorting in all these churches. Some people might even, say I, was, to be some clear. Might even say I was preaching, you know. Um, oh, and actually, man. when I got examined, I, they asked me what I, I used somehow preaching in my sermon. And one of the pastors, no, you are not preaching. You are exhorting. I'm like, fine. We'll call it a tomato, tomato, whatever you want to call it. That doesn't matter to me. But anyway, right, right. So I began preaching in our churches around the reservation. And was eventually called to pastor a church. Again, technically, I was the teaching elder in another church on loan to the churches, blah, blah, blah. I, I pastored the church right. in Denver called the Christian Indian Center. Okay. And uh, got in my first council meeting, my, the elders of the church said to me, this was a native church started by the Christian Reformed Church for about 50 years ago. I was one of the first native pastors they had in about a decade. Mm. 
Wow. And they said to me, they said, our last pastor introduced us to the concept of contextualizing worship. And we want you to lead us into that. I said, sure, that sounds great. Okay. How do you spell it? Like, I have no clue what you're talking about. Right. Like, and they said, well, there's this conference going on by a group called the World Christian Gathering on Indigenous Peoples. Okay. And they're hosting a two-week conference in Hawaii. And we want to send you and your wife there to go and build a relationship and learn about this process. Okay. And I said, for nothing other than the sake of the gospel, I will pick up my cross and board the plane with my wife and travel to Hawaii. Right. To Anyway, so we got yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, really became a part of this group, which I would call a group of indigenous Christian leaders from all over the world. Okay. And the experience of most indigenous Christians is they have been colonized by the gospel, right? A European nation colonized their lands and brought the gospel through that process of colonization. And just like they did here in the U.S., you have to speak our language, you have mm. to practice our customs, you have to give up your pagan ways and accept our pagan yeah. ways and do all these other things. And, and so most these people from all over the world had the experience of being colonized by the gospel and they were going through almost some kind of a renaissance of asking the question, what does it mean to be of my tribe of yeah. my indigenous nation? Right. And still follow Jesus and still be a Christian. Right. Hmm. And so my, my church and I, and my wife were really got on board with that. Hmm. And we were part of that group for almost a decade wow. as well. They were meeting, we were having conferences every few years in different countries around the world being hosted by the people of those lands. I, I went to not only Hawaii, but I went to the Sami up in, up in uh, Sweden. We were hosted by some Messianic Jewish believers in Israel. Wow. We went to New Zealand and were hosted by the Maori. We, you know, I, I, wow. All over the world. Beautiful. Um, and that's what really motivated my wife and I two years later after arriving in Denver to decide to leave the church I was pastoring mm. and move back to the Navajo nation. Mm. Um, because I really felt convicted because I grew up in a border town in this Dutch ghetto and I didn't speak the language. I wasn't raised with the culture. Mm. I realized if I want to lead this process with integrity, I have to be back on the reservation. Mm. And so we moved back to the Navajo Nation, my wife and I and our son. And for three years, we lived in a very remote section of our reservation. Mm. We were six miles off the nearest paved road on a dirt road. Wow. Lived in a single one-room hogan, about 25 feet in diameter. Mm -hmm. No running water. We had a dirt floor, log walls. We had an outhouse about 75 meters from the house. Our neighbors were rug weavers and shepherds. Um, wow. You know, we, we were completely living off the grid, hauling water and, and cooking by a, a camp stove or open fire and living by candlelight. And we prepared when we moved there, we prepared to be off the grid, right? Mm. We prepared for that. Right. But the thing that caught us by surprise, the hardest part about that transition. Yeah was it literally felt like we dropped off the face of the earth. Right. Like our, our first observation was we almost saw no non-native peoples. 
And we quickly learned that the only non-natives who go to reservations come for one of two reasons. They come to give us charity or they come to take our picture. And often it's the same people coming for both reasons. Mm. No one wants to get to know us as people. No one wants to really hear our story and get to know us as as Mm. people. Mm. And so as we're experiencing this really intense marginalization, I'm learning and experiencing about the doctrine of discovery and its its legacy within our people and our lands. I'm seeing how this environment is so very oppressive even to this day. And I found myself both becoming very angry as Mm. well as very insecure. Mm. And I was trying to process through these emotions with some of my non-native friends over the phone, even by email. They weren't coming to the reservation, Mm. you know, but we're commenting, talking other ways. And every time the topic would come up, I could feel myself getting more and more angry. And eventually Mm. I'd have to hang up the phone so I wouldn't yell at my friends. Mm. So I began to kind of temper myself, mm. right? I began to talk about it like I read it in a newspaper, more of the third person account. Yeah, yeah. And I could stay engaged better that way. Mm. But then my friends would get defensive. It's not my family who did that to you. We didn't do those things. And soon they would drop out of the conversation. Mm. And I didn't know how to have this dialogue in a way where I could be honest about what I was feeling and experiencing. Yeah. And yet still keep them in the conversation. Right. And so one day I was writing a letter. This was like the 10th time to get them to understand how it felt to be native living on a reservation in the middle of this country. Right. United States. Right. And I said, I said, being native and living on a reservation, it feels like our native community is this old grandmother who has a very large and very beautiful house. And years ago, some people came into our house and they locked us upstairs in the bedroom. Mm. Today, our house is full of people. They're sitting on our furniture. They're eating our food. They're having a party inside our house. Now, they've since come upstairs and they've unlocked the door to our bedroom, but it's much later. We're tired. We're old. We're weak. We're sick. So we can't or we don't come out. But the thing that hurts us the most, that causes us the most pain, is that virtually nobody from this party ever comes upstairs, Mm. seeks out the grandmother in the bedroom, sits down next to her on the bed, takes her hand, and just simply says, thank you. Thank you for letting us be in your house. Mm. I said that and I'm like, that's it. That's how I'm feeling. Mm. I started sharing that with people in our community, other natives. And some said to me, you know, I've lived here all my life. I've never known how to articulate how it feels. And you're hitting the nail on the head. Yeah. Yeah. I'd share with non-native peoples and they would come back instead of being angry, angry or defensive. They would say, how do we say thank you? Right. Yeah. And I found that through that metaphor, we could actually have a dialogue, not specifically regarding the label of victim or oppressor, Mm. but about what I would call this reversal of roles, which is we have this nation that likes to call himself a nation of immigrants. Mm. Most of them are from Europe. Mm. And they've been running around acting like they own the place. Yeah. Meanwhile, we have 6 million Native peoples who have been pushed aside to unwanted lands and we're being treated like unwanted guests in someone else's house. Mm. And the thing I'm convinced of is we have to reverse those roles. I need this nation of 300 million undocumented immigrants mm. to understand in some very real and practical ways that they are guests in someone else's house. Mm. 
And I want our native people to understand in some very real and practical ways that we are the host people of these lands and we need to step into our role as the host. Hmm. And that metaphor of the grandmother in the house is a metaphor. It's on my YouTube channel. I've used it around the globe yeah. to begin to initiate dialogue between indigenous peoples and their colonizers. Yeah. And so that was one of the first kind of aha moments of how do I begin to breach this conversation? How do I begin to bring up these topics in a way that moves us forward and doesn't just leave us feeling stuck? Right. Right. Okay. That's amazing. You tell your story really well. <laughs> and I think that, um, you know, that, that I think, is that an analogy in the book? Cause I remember reading it or hearing it. Somewhere. It is in the book. Yeah. Okay. I, I use it a lot. I use it okay. in my speeches. It's in the book. I've used it on a lot of other interviews. So yeah, I, I, again, it's one of the best tools I, I found to engage this conversation, at least get it started. I have to agree with you because <laughs> as I'm reading that, I'm thinking, Oh, okay. Like, yes, this helps me understand that the land I'm on. Okay. I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting this picture right more and more. So I, I would agree with you just to, I'm sure it's been affirmed a thousand times. We call it a thousand to one. It's a great analogy and it does help disarm that rhetoric, right. That people can get themselves into and have a real conversation so yeah. people can understand what's actually going on. So you wrote this book, Unsettling Truths, along with um, Sung Chara. It's an amazing, amazing book. It helped me so much. The big thing that, that stuck out to me is the doctrine of discovery that you really help unpack. Now, I know my audience out there, we're kind of all over the place. I think a lot of us are like, I've heard about this. I, I discovered recently that maybe Christopher Columbus is a really bad guy over the past like two or three years for the first time. I don't know how this all fits into the picture. And a lot of us are really trying to I use the term decolonize our faith and also, you know, our own beliefs. I mean, I, I've been born to anti-racist work, like, you know, the, the work of Ibram Kendi, for example, trying to understand this. Yeah. But I feel like the when it comes to indigenous people and their history, I'm a, I'm just ignorant on it. And I'm trying to educate myself and learn. So can you kind of walk us through the doctrine of discovery a little bit and kind of how we got to to some of these, you know, mass genocides that 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 Europeans yeah. are responsible for, frankly? Yeah, so there's many ways we could take this. I'll just give you a brief summary of what the doctrine is. Perfect. So the doctrine of discovery, it's a series of papal bulls, edicts of the Catholic Church. Okay. Written between 1452 and 1493. It says things like invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever, reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, convert them to his and to their use and profit. It's essentially the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, right. whatever lands you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers, hmm. those people are subhuman and their land is yours to take. So this is the doctrine that allowed European nations to go into Africa, colonize the continent and enslave the people because they did not see them as human. It's the same doctrine that let Columbus, who literally was lost at sea, land in this new world, which was already inhabited by millions right. and claimed to have discovered it. The first sentence of the first chapter of Unsettling Truth says you cannot discover lands already inhabited. Right. You can right. steal those lands. You can conquer those lands. You can even right. colonize those lands. You can't discover them. Right. Right. Unless your implicit racial bias informs you mm. that the people living there are not fully human. Mm -hmm. 
Now, chapters three and four of this book, I, I, I think there'll be chapters your audience will really like. Mm. Because if you're wrestling with the history of evangelical church yeah, and of the messaging of that church yeah, and where it says one thing and, and does something exactly the opposite. Yes. If exactly. you're wondering how the church got from the teachings of Jesus, yeah, who says things like, um, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Right. How we got from that to a doctrine that literally says you can kill people right. who don't look like, act like, sound like, or worship like you. Right. And chapters three and four takes us on that journey. And just a brief glimpse into what it was. So the Old Testament Israel had a land covenant with the God of Abraham. Mm-hmm. Their land covenant said if they obeyed God, they would prosper and be blessed in their land. If they disobeyed God, they would be exiled and removed from their land. Yeah. So their prosperity was one of their barometers of their faith. They could know if they were prosperous, if their borders were strong and their families were healthy and their crops were growing, they could be pretty assured that they were doing well in their relationship with God. Hmm. If they were exiled from their lands, their borders were weak, their families were hungry, they might get a clue that something in their relationship with God was amiss. So they had this barometer of prosperity. It wasn't their only barometer, but it was one of their primary ones. Now, when Jesus came into this earth, he began to give them a new barometer. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said to them, blessed are you, not when you prosper, but when you're persecuted. Mm. In Mark chapter 8, after the disciples figured out Jesus was the Messiah, he began to teach them that the Messiah must be persecuted and even crucified. And the disciples, like the rest of us, hated that idea. Right, right. Peter's like, you don't have to die. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, right? I mean, he totally rejected that. Yeah. And so Jesus was giving the disciples a new barometer. And if you look at the, if that, that passage, that story comes in the very middle of the gospel of Mark. Mm. And so chapters eight through 16, you see this very definite tension between Jesus and his disciples, where he is trying to both model and teach them that persecution comes with the territory and is one of the barometers of their discipleship. Mm -hmm. And the disciples are pushing back against that with everything they have to the point that in the end, when they actually come for Jesus, his disciples abandon him and he dies alone. Right. It's not until Pentecost that they actually get it. And once they get it, most of them go on to die a martyr's death. Yeah. Now, I'll give you a little bit of insight here, or a little bit of backstory to the book. So we were we we wanted to include the story of um Constantine's battle at Melvane Bridge mm. and his yeah. vision that that he saw. I had never studied that before, Hmm. but we decided to include that because we thought it would be a great opening for, we actually thought we'd open the book with it. And so I I, I did some research into who recorded this vision. It was recorded by Eusebius, who was the the Bishop of Caesarea. He actually baptized Constantine. He was kind of his, he kind of discipled him. And uh, as I read Eusebius's main work, one of his main writings was called Ecclesiastical History, which is a volume of 11 books. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, 
in his book, he uh, he holds up the martyrs as people who are sharing in the suffering of Christ. And as well, I don't want to give too much away here. Plus, I could just go on for hours about all this. Anyway, so so Eusebius, the great persecution in 304 AD touches Eusebius. Mm. He knows people who get killed. He sees some of their death himself. Yeah. After that happens, his whole attitude towards martyrdom begins to change. Mm. And instead of now a pious act of the church, mm. he is now trying to find a way to end it. Mm. And his solution to end the persecution of the church is to appeal to the emperor. And so he begins to prop up Constantine mm. as an emperor ordained by God. Mm. And he, so he, he decides, right, that this persecution thing is no longer working. Right. He wants to go back to this barometer of prosperity. Right. And so for all my years, I've blamed Christendom, this heresy of a Christian empire on Constantine. Mm. But in learning the story, I actually realized, no, this heresy, this, this, this heresy actually began with Eusebius. Interesting. He's the one who props up Constantine and Constantine bites and Christianizes Rome and everything else. Right. Again with Eusebius. Right. And it's because the persecution touched him. Hmm. And so Eusebius, right. He's, he's decides we want to end this, this legacy of persecution and begin to live with this, go back to this barometer of prosperity. Hmm. And so this now becomes the struggle of the church, mm. right? Up to this day. Yeah, definitely. Where the church is about gaining power. Right, 100%. Instead of losing life, right? When you had a church, a loose collection of relationships of people following the teaching of this guy who was carrying a cross to his own death. Yeah. Right? A church can actually lose its life. But once you get a Christian empire, right. an institution, right. now the institution has to be about preserving itself, right. multiplying itself. And so yeah. it loses its ability to lose its own life. And now the church must become a place where you don't lose life, but you save life. Mm. And like Jesus said, you know, if whoever's going to lose, whoever's going to save the life has to lose it. Yeah. If you try to save your life, you're, you're going to end up losing it. Hmm. And so this is this, that whole journey. And I, I just touched on a few components of it. Right. Where the church through the, the teachings of Eusebius decides it wants to give up Christ's barometer of prosperity of, of suffering. Right and go back to this Old Testament barometer of prosperity. Yeah, yeah. And this is what, again, this may not have seemed like a very big schism back in 304 AD or, or 325 AD, hmm. but now 2,000 years later, yeah, yeah, we literally, we, we do, we have a church that believes it can kill people. Right. Who right. don't follow the commands of God, which is there was no place you see that in this in the teachings of Jesus. 
Right. Right. He's like, you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you. You don't right. kill them. Right. So anyway, so so that whole journey is in and of itself very, very fascinating. Yeah. Um, and then one other key component of this sure. comes in 1630. So hmm. the doctrine of discovery, right? It's 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 this white male Christian supremacist doctrine. That's the fruit of a church that's prostituted itself out to the empire. Yeah. Yeah. That's well said. And initially the Protestant church pushes back on that. This is a Catholic doctrine. They didn't buy into it. Right. But in 1630, John Winthrop is on board a boat and he's with a group of colonists. They're in what's now called the Boston Harbor. Mm. And they're there to plant the Boston colony. Mm. And he preaches on that boat a sermon titled A Model of Christian Charity. In his sermon, he refers to the colonists that he's with as a city upon a hill, mm-hmm. where he's borrowing from the language of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, be a lamp on a stand, a city on a hill, shine your bright deeds into this dark world. He goes on to exhort them in all patience, gentleness, eagerness, and self-control. You know, just he gives them basic Christian exhortations. End of his sermon, he's trying to convince his congregants to heed his exhortations. And so he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Hmm. Now, Deuteronomy 30 is the passage in the Old Testament where the people of Israel are standing at the banks of the Jordan River. They're about ready to cross over to take possession of their promised lands, and they are being reminded of the threats and promises of their land covenant. Mm -hmm. They obey God, he'll do these things for them. They disobey him, he'll do these things to them. And in that passage, it says, but if our hearts will turn away so that we do not obey yeah. and we worship other gods, we will surely perish out of the good land, whether we cross over this river to possess it. Mm-hmm. Now, Deuteronomy 30 says river, but John Winthrop changes that word to vast sea. Mm. Why? Well, they didn't cross the river, they crossed an ocean. Right, right. So what's he saying? Right. Well, based on the exhortations of Jesus to be a city on a hill, based on the model of Old Testament Israel and their land covenant, they are standing on the banks of their promised land, ready to go and take possession of it. Right. Now, if you read the books of Deuteronomy and Joshua, God is pretty specific about how Old Testament Israel is to take possession of their promised land, and they are to do that by killing everybody. Yep. Literally, it says, leave no man, no woman, no child, no animal left alive. Yep. So promised land for one people is literally God-ordained genocide for another. Hmm. I refer to that sermon frequently as the birth of American exceptionalism. Hmm. Hmm. This idea that okay. this nation of white supremacist Christian men right. have a special relationship with the God of Abraham right. that A, gives them promised lands, and B, justifies genocide yeah yeah ethnic cleansing enslavement all these other things because of their special relationship their covenant with the god of abraham wow wow i mean that's yes that makes when you put it like that right and people know that it's like oh my god like you start to be able to see it, it comes into focus what does it look like or what did it look like for indigenous people when this started being enacted? You know, like what, how did they, 
like what what happened as far as as, as that process? You know, you have people like John Winthrop and stuff saying this yeah. is our land to take. Let's take it. So what happens? Because it's there sitting, are so yeah. many examples I could give you, but the the example I will go through now in this okay. interview is chapters nine and ten of my book of yeah. this book are probably the two hardest chapters to read as well as to the hardest chapters to write. Yeah. Because we look very closely at what I would call the mythological legacy of Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Yep. So in 1862, Abraham Lincoln signed the Pacific Railway Act and the Homestead Act. The Pacific Railway Act provides the land and the resources to complete the Transcontinental Railway. And the Homestead Act um, allocates 160 acres for any American citizen who goes west in homesteads for five years. He signed that bill in January of 1862. Hmm. Literally, over the next two and a half years, after numerous massacres, including the massacre at Sand Creek, the removal of the Winnebago and Dakota from Minnesota, and the hanging of the Dakota 38, hmm. and the long walk and the ethnic cleansing of the Navajo and Mescalero Apache from the Territory of New Mexico. When you look at where each of these massacres take place and where they're removing Native people from, Abraham Lincoln is literally ethnically cleansing the route of the Transcontinental Railway. There's a route that made it to Omaha, Nebraska, and was going on to San San Francisco. Mm -hmm. There was a route that began in Duluth, Minnesota, and went through the northern states and ends up near Seattle. And there's a southern route that goes through the territory of New Mexico and ends up near the port of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And Abraham Lincoln is literally ethnically cleansing the Native peoples from along that route. Mm -hmm. Chapters 9 and 10 identify that he is one of the most ethnic cleansing genocidal presidents in our nation's history. Hmm. In fact, my people, the Navajo people, we were literally in a death camp called Boscredondo down in Fort Sumner, which was a reservation that Abraham Lincoln approved. Hmm. And we were brought down there. 10,000 of our people were rounded up and put in this God-forsaken pit. Yeah. And a quarter of our people died while we were in prison there. We were actually there when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. We didn't weren't able to negotiate our release from that place until after Abraham Lincoln died. Hmm. And so, right, and this is just one example. I mean, I, I can only imagine how many native lives were saved because Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in 1865. Hmm. And so this is the challenge. Well, I'm going to show you a quote. Sure. It's actually from Peter Burnett, who was the governor of California Hmm. in um, 1851. Now, California was a state that actually it bypassed being a territory and it went straight to statehood after the um, after the uh, uh, gold rush in 1848. California became so you got so many people in it that they went straight to statehood. And there was a lot of natives living in California. There were hundreds of native nations living in California. Mm. And um, in his state of the state address, 
1851. This is what uh, Peter Burnett said. Hold on, I'm just, I want to make sure I have it right here. No, for sure. Take your time. He said that a war of extermination will continue to be waged between the races mm. until the Indian race becomes extinct must be expected. While we cannot anticipate this result, but with painful regret, the inevitable destiny of the race is beyond the power or the wisdom of man to avert. Mm. He's not saying that famine's broken out and we can't feed these people, therefore they're dying. Right. And he's not saying disease has struck and we can't stop its spread, therefore they're dying. He's literally saying, we can't stop killing these people right. until they're exterminated yeah. so that we can complete our manifest destiny. Yeah. Again, if you compare that to the language of, of Deuteronomy and Joshua, yeah. where you know it, it declares Joshua de- ethnically cleansed all of Canaan. Right. I mean, right. this is literally what this nation is doing. And so right. when you look at, at these, and, and I remember the, the one day that uh, I, was, I was looking through some of these massacres that happened on Abraham Lincoln's watch. Yeah. And I was going through some of uh, where they took place and, and where they were at. And then I found a great map that showed the Transcontinental Railway and some of the proposed routes that it was, it was going to be going through. And I could not believe it that within two years of signing the Pacific Railway Act, Abraham Lincoln literally had ethnically cleansed almost all the people from the state of Minnesota, Hmm. the the state of Colorado and Utah, and the territory of New Mexico, which were the three primary routes of this railway. Hmm. And you look at that and you're just like, oh my gosh, I, I, I was actually, I was going through this long period. It was like a five month period of lament. Mm. Where my mythology of Abraham Lincoln was being deconstructed. And I remember it was it was um it was the late in the fall, and I was finishing up a section of the book about white supremacy. And I wanted to include a story of Abraham Lincoln, Mm. because if you go to the Lincoln Memorial, at the museum at the base of the memorial, there's there's a a small museum that has different quotes from Lincoln about different parts of his legacy. And there's a plaque that has a quote of his legacy about the union. And on that plaque, it says, my primary object in this struggle is not to save or destroy slavery, it's to preserve the union. Right. If I could save this union without freeing a single slave, I would do it. Right. If I could save the union by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. There's a quote, a plaque hanging in Lincoln Memorial that literally says, according to Abraham Lincoln, black lives don't matter. Right. I'd seen that plaque. I knew it was there. I knew Abraham Lincoln had kind of a checkered past about race. And that he overcame that through his friendship with Frederick Douglass. And so, uh, but I, I still, I wanted to include that to say, even Abraham Lincoln had struggled with some of these implicit biases. So I woke up early one morning and I was going to take my daughters to school. I woke up two hours early mm-hmm. and I was going to write in that story Yeah, and finish this section. It was the concluding story of this, this chapter on implicit bias and white supremacy. Yeah. And so I woke up and I thought, okay, it'll take me an hour to write this story. I've told it many times. It's in all my lectures and this won't take much time at all. Well, I thought I should probably 
provide some context. Hmm. So Lincoln gave that quote in response to an op-ed written in the New York Tribune that was calling for the immediate emancipation of the slaves. Right. And so I thought, well, I should read that op-ed. So I read the op-ed. The op-ed quoted something that Lincoln said in his inaugural address. Mm. So I thought, well, I should probably read the inaugural address. Yeah. So I read the inaugural address, and the inaugural address quoted something that Lincoln said in the Lincoln-Douglas debate. Mm. And I'm like, crap, now I got to go back and read the Lincoln-Douglas <laughs> Yeah, you're like three layers in. And know? so I go in and I find this quote and I just I want to read it for you again because it's so atrocious. Mm. But I found this quote from Abraham Lincoln. So in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, right, yeah. he's introducing himself to the nation. Right. And people know that he's against chattel slavery, but they don't know what where he stands on race. And so he clarifies right. for them. Right. And in in the debate in September of 1858, he says, I will say then that I am not, nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. Yep. That I am not, nor have been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. I will say in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality quality and as much as they cannot so live while they do remain together there must be the position of superior and inferior and i as much as any other man am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race yeah i read that yeah and i'm like holy crap right abraham lincoln was a blatant unapologetic yep white supremacist I yeah. turned off my computer. I couldn't write that morning. Yeah. I'm like, I, I whatever I wrote would have just been screaming. Right. I had to process through that. And that began what I would call almost a four to five months journey of study and lament, of understanding how mythological yeah. the legacy of Abraham Lincoln is. Yeah. And we actually don't know, we're not told the truth about what he actually said, what he actually did, and what he actually believed. And the man was one of the most blatantly white supremacists, yeah. as well as ethnic cleansing and genocidal presidents in our nation's entire history, Yeah, yeah. who gave us tools that we are using to this day. Yeah. Right? If you read his legacy, the 13th Amendment, which yep. again, we falsely believe abolishes slavery. Right. The amendment doesn't abolish slavery. It says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party has been duly convicted shall exist within the United States. It doesn't right. abolish slavery. It redefines and codifies it under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. Right. He's giving us the tools we're using today to massively incarcerate people of color and remove their civil rights from them. Yeah. And so again, this I'm I'm going through this eight-month prior, five-month process of deconstructing my mythological understanding of Abraham Lincoln. 
Yeah. Looking honestly at his legacy. And in the midst of this, I get invited to speak at by by Reverend Barber's camp at a poor people's campaign that was here mm-hmm. in DC. And so I um I was sitting here in the house thinking about what I was going to say that night. I wasn't studying anything, I wasn't reading anything, I wasn't um looking at anything new. I was just pondering what I was going to say. Then I had two minutes on stage. I thought, well, if I have two minutes on President's Day, it was on President's Day, I'm going to deconstruct Lincoln. All right. And so I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking what I'm going to say. Now, all my life as a Navajo man, I have blamed the long walk mm. on Kit Carson. Mm. Kit Carson is the army captain who led his army through our land. Yeah rounded up our people and brought us down to Buscardondo. I've always blamed him for the long walk and the ethnic cleansing of my people. Yeah. And that morning I wasn't learning anything new, saying anything new, but for the first time in my life, when I thought about the long walk, the face of Abraham Lincoln replaced the face of Kit Carson in my mind. Hmm. And I thought, holy crap, mm. he, Lincoln's policies right. Right. is what led to the ethnic cleansing of my people. Yeah. And again, it's like, and so it's one thing, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say this, but one part of the journey was understanding how white supremacist he was. Yeah. Once that dam was broke. Yeah. Then there was this journey to seeing very clearly how ethnic cleansing and genocidal the man was. Yeah. And again, it just completely reframed my entire understanding of Abraham Lincoln. So chapters nine and 10 in this book yeah. go very in depth into that, into that history. Yep. Yep. And I think it's it's the perfect example, right? So even just a few weeks ago, they had a large gathering in um, Richmond, Virginia, Mm -hmm. and they removed a statue of of Robert Lee from the Capitol building. Yep. And there was a lot of speeches given. It was a big ordeal, and people were celebrating the fact. And not that I'm mad that they removed it. It's good. Yeah, we should probably not celebrate that. Right. Not celebrate him. Right. Right. That's the low-hanging fruit, right? I mean, he's, he's an Army general of a for the side that lost the war right right this is america we don't celebrate anyone who loses right right? Right. so he's the low-hanging fruit totally so if we really want to remove celebrations of white supremacy and racism yeah from our monuments yeah let's not stop with removing a statue of general lee that's easy yeah let's do something about this temple sitting on the National Mall, honoring Abraham Lincoln, that has a quote in the basement saying he doesn't even believe Black Lives Matter. Right. Let's remove that. If we can get that out of the center of our nation's yeah. memorials, that would be something to really, hey, that's really doing something. Why? Because we care for him so much. He's at the heart of our of, of what we believe is a nation. Right. Right. And so, you know, I, I, I remember even thinking I was 
thinking about going down to Richmond to, to see the removal of that statue. I wasn't able to make it work. But again, I'm thought that 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 while that's a good thing, we're removing it, that's not the the center of the problem. Because most of our nation doesn't honor generally anyway. But we all, Democrats and Republicans, yes, hold as incredibly sacred. The legacy of Abraham Lincoln. Absolutely. Um, okay. Thank you for sharing all that, by the way. Amazing. I'm I'm like, you know, in a lot of ways at a loss just because I'm like, this is so good, so good. I do want to hit on a few things. It's already almost been an hour. I can't believe it. Time flies when <laughs> we're talking about this stuff. I think, um, first of all, I just want to say that, you know, it yes, removing the statue of Lee is low-hanging fruit, but to some people in their mind, it's the end of America as we know it, as we know from a former president <clears throat> who had a quote pretty quickly about that, right? Yeah. But he does represent a very large and growing base of people. Um, and it's amazing to me that we have to have this conversation in 2021, but it also shows how deep-rooted this stuff is. So I have I have kind of um two questions. Well, one, one observation I want to make, and, and it's really directly because of you that I made this observation. So thank you. My first thing I want to say is you were one of the few people that started kind of waking me up to the reality that like Democrats aren't good either. Right. Cause I think what happens to a lot of us is that we grew up in this really fundamentalist conservative, you know, nationalistic view. And once we start talking about social justice or just certain terms, People just throw us in like this liberal camp, right? And I've been saying it for a long time, guys, I'm really not liberal. You know, I was not a fan of Joe Biden. Um, I think that Democrats have plenty of problems. However, just because we're talking about social justice and they talk about it, we get associated with like, oh, you must be just as, just like how a Trump supporter is so allegiant to Trump, you must be that way with Biden. It's like, Absolutely not. In fact, Biden has been terrible so far. The, the 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 drone bombings happening overseas that killed civilians and all the other stuff that you and I can talk about. So yeah. I appreciate that 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 you are saying, like, guys, you don't understand. This is, is this is not a a typical political divide in, in our current context. Yes, these are political issues, but both parties are still pretty far right, you know, given like the history of where we are. So I appreciate that from you. It, it, it has helped me to get clarity and to better articulate my own positions of like, I really don't like Democrats either. We have plenty of problems. So yeah. I wanted to make the observation and, and thank you for it. Yeah, I think one of the things that I, and I want to share something with you that I actually wrote for um, for the Worship Institute, which is uh, a part of Calvin University. Mm. And it's something that I, this was maybe three years ago, 2018, I think, right? When we were during, it was during the Trump administration and we were wrestling with immigration and yeah. especially the fact that we had kids being locked in cages and there was right. this huge uproar and the Worship Institute at Kelvin, uh, John Whitvliet runs it, and it's one of the most um, ecumenical things that that Kelvin does. I, there's people from all different um, across the spectrum of the Christian faith are there, okay. you know, and it, it's very very broad. And I really enjoy the conversations that happened there. And they they were looking that year at the Proverbs. And John asked me, kind of on the spur of the moment, to write something about my prophetic message mm. in the form of a proverb. Mm. 
And so I want to read for you what I wrote and what I, I delivered to the, to the group that day. And it's called From Prophecy to Proverb. Mm. And I think one of the challenges that we face as Christians yeah. is that we buy into the partisan politics of our nation. Yeah. And so we don't speak prophetically. Right? We, we, don't, we don't prophesy. We protest and lobby. Mm. And that's a huge problem because when you when you prophesy, you speak truth to power, yes. no matter of your relationship to that power. Right. When you protest and you lobby, then you change your delivery based on your relationship with the person who's in power. Right. That's exactly right. And so and so this is where as Christians, most of our national Christian organizations don't teach us to be prophets. They teach us to be lobbyists and protesters. Totally. Which may have some benefit for the nation, but it is absolutely detrimental to the church. Yeah, that's good. And so let me read this for you. Yeah, please. Said, why is the church that refuses to buy into the trappings of partisan politics? Yeah. Remember, my brothers and sisters, Jesus did not come to create a Christian empire. He came to make disciples. He came to offer his body as a living sacrifice. He came to plant a church. When the church merely lobbies one political leader and protests the other, when for the sake of argument or political gain, the body of Christ turns a blind eye to one sin and magnifies another, we are not representing the headship of our body, who is Christ. As vile, repulsive, and urgent is the Trump administration's separation of families at our border, it's not the first time. Yep. Indian removal, the slave trade, boarding schools, lynchings, Japanese internment camps, mass incarceration, even the deportation numbers of the Obama administration. The list of ways the U.S. government has worked to destroy the family structure of people of color throughout our history is as long as it is depressing. Yeah. So let's stop pretending that President Trump is the God-ordained savior or the ultimate demise of our union. Yep. The same with President Obama. Yeah. What our nation needs is not for Democrats to be better Democrats, nor do we need Republicans to simply be better re Republicans. We don't even need our nation to be more Christian. My brothers and sisters, the United States of America is not, never has been, nor will it ever be Christian. Jesus did not come to create a Christian empire. He came to make disciples. He came to offer his body as a living sacrifice. He came to plant a church. And wise is the church that refuses to bind to the trappings of partisan politics. Mm. I believe with Kenneth Kaunda, the former president of Zambia, who said, what a nation needs more than anything else is not a Christian ruler in the palace, but a Christian prophet within earshot. It's mm. great. I think you're spot on. I think you're right on the money. A hundred, a thousand percent. You know, I think you really are. And I think what I found, because I actually spend a lot more time critiquing the left than I do the right. Huh. Right. Critiquing the right. They're, they're explicitly racist and sexist and white supremacist. That's like telling your five-year-old there's something wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's pretty easy to catch them and it's pretty easy to point out what they're, what they're, what they're wrong about. Right. Critiquing the left, they're a lot more nuanced. Mm. They're like critiquing or, or, dis, or disciplining your teenager. 
Mm. Right, they 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 have some awareness that they're hiding things a bit more, right. and so you have to you have to catch them. Yeah. And like even just an example, so just we all know in the past few months, right, that the the Republican state parties have been doing a lot to limit voting, yes, and restrict voting yes. across the nation, yeah. Um, and uh, and the Democrats at a national level have put forth their proposal, which um they call uh. H.R. 1, House Resolution 1, which is the For the People Act, yeah, where they're at a national level, they're addressing what Democrats are, or Republicans are trying to do it at the state level. Right. And they're trying to, to, to reinforce some of the voting. Now, I don't deny that what the Republicans are doing at the state level is horrible right. and it needs to be addressed. Right. However, you have to understand the two parties. Hmm. So the Republicans, right, they have a very conservative, a very exclusive worldview yes they're much more explicitly racist and sexist and white supremacist and they're not they're losing their shame while even trying to hide it anymore totally and and so therefore republicans are terrified of voters hmm. right because because their base is vocal and strong but small and not growing yeah the more people who vote the worse it is for Republicans. So mm-hmm. Republicans are terrified of voters. Yeah. Now the Democrats, they have a much more diverse base, mm-hmm. but they continue with very few exceptions to nominate white landowning men from the 1% who are adamant about maintaining the status quo, just like they did in 2020 with Joe Biden. Yeah. And so the Democrats are much more afraid once they nominate their white landowning male from the 1% that their base is going to wander. Right. And so they work very hard to restrict candidates, Mm. third party and independent. Mm. So in their For the People Act, if you actually read that act, yeah. In the 1970s, when the, all this re- voter reform was going through, yeah. there was a law that was crafted that stated the two parties, the national parties, could donate two cents for every age-eligible voter directly to their candidate. Okay. So that meant in 2020, the Democrats could give $5 million to Joe Biden, and the Republicans could give $5 million to Donald Trump. This is a direct donation right supporting their campaign by the national party. Gotcha. Okay? Yep, yep. So the For the People Act amends that law and it changes it from 2 cents to age eligible voter for every age eligible voter. It changes it to a flat 100 million dollars. I'm sorry, what? So now, if this law passes, the Democrats in 2024 will be able to donate directly $100 million to their nominee and the Republicans $100 million to their nominee. Again, putting even further distance between them in the two parties and third party and independent candidates. Right, right. Wow. So you have to remember, yes, Republicans hate voters. They're terrified of letting people vote. And so they're doing everything they can to be to restrict them. And that needs to be stopped. I don't deny that. Right. But Democrats hate competition. Right. And so they are doing everything they can to limit Mm. Mm. the number of people who can run a viable campaign. 
Wow. And they are actually working right now to give the two-party system a one an additional $100 million advantage. And so you also have to know that parties can fundraise differently than candidates. A party can raise $35,000 per donor in a single year. So this two this hundred million dollars is not going to come from people giving five or six dollars to the party. It's going to come from people who've maxed out their donation to the candidate. Right. And now they will max out their thirty-five dollar donation to the party. So yeah. the party will have another one hundred million dollars to donate to the candidate. Yeah, yeah, wow. So again, yeah, it's, it's like the, it's like disciplining a five-year-old and a teenager. <laughs> you do it differently. Yeah. And right. so I spend a lot more time critiquing the Democrats because they try to be a lot more sneaky about what they're doing. Mm. But they both are absolutely detrimental to our democratic process. Wow. Okay. Um, I have one last question for you. Thank you for, again, spending time with us. So I always like to ask a very practical question. Um, we'll use myself as an example. You know, I, I told, I told you this before we started recording, I'm kind of becoming aware for the first time in my life about the history of America, you know, doctrine of discovery, indigenous people, genocide, all that stuff. How do people who might be listening to this episode be like, okay, like what, what, what do I do? How can I help? How can I, how can I help be part of this healing process? Right? Like I live in a little town called Delanco in New Jersey. I'm just one little dude, you know, podcasting. How do I help be a part of things that were put in place before I was even born? You know, how do I help to undo this stuff? Give me a few practical things. Well, well, this is the problem. There are no practical things. Okay. This this is the true problem. I appreciate the honesty. So so (laughs) the, the, the book began when Sunshan and I first wrote the proposal for our book, yeah, our thesis was we wanted this book to be a call to lament. Hmm. The 2016 election with the explicit racism, sexism, and white supremacy of the Republicans and the implicit racism, sexism, and white supremacy of the Democrats yeah. encouraged us or mandated that we change our, our direction of the book and it turned into a flat-out rebuke. Just a flat-out rebuke of the church. We still talk about lament, but we're much more stronger in our rebuke of the church. Yeah. And so the thing that, so if you read the the last chapter of of our book, we basically say in its current form, the church has nothing to offer in the solution of this problem. Because the church merely will want to, to do what caused the problem in the first place, which is make the nation Christian. Right, right. Right. And it, it doesn't understand that you can't, uh, there's no such thing as a Christian nation. It doesn't exist. Yeah. And so, and so that's the problem is right now in its current form, the institution of the church, Yeah. I would argue, and I do argue in the book, has nothing to offer the problems it's created. Mm. Now, individuals within the church can be more engaged. So, and again, the the call we have for people is to lament. Now, it's important to understand, like, so Sun Chan wrote this fantastic book titled The Prophetic Lament. Mm. And in his book, he highlights how the church is anemic at lament. Yeah. He compares lament to going to a funeral dirge. Right. There's a dead body in the casket. It's not coming back to life. You don't go to the funeral to raise the body from the dead. You go there to weep. You go there to mourn. You go there to say goodbye. You Mm. go there to lament. 
And then he points out how anemic the church is at the process of lament. Yeah. Yeah, I, sure. I like to tell people that it's nearly impossible to lament when you believe in your own exceptionalism. Wow. It doesn't give you any space to lament. Right. And so lament is not a repentance. Lament is not a turning away. Lament is not even asking for forgiveness. Lament is sitting in the brokenness mm. and allowing the depth of the brokenness to be impressed upon you. Yeah. And so we are absolutely calling the church this is something the church can actively do is that it can actively lament and allow itself to deeply understand what's going on yeah, and what it's complicit in. Yeah. And then to allow creator, right. When you look at the process of lament, when you see the people of God in the church lament in the scriptures, yeah, God always shows up. Yeah. Nehemiah, the Psalms, anytime the people lament, God always shows up. He doesn't come quickly. But he always shows up. The challenge with the church that laments for maybe half of a song, right? We can't even end. We can't even end Good Friday service in lament. No, no, gotta end with the big simple spells, my friend. But Jesus is coming. You know, Sunday's (laughs) coming. We can't even end Good Friday with lament. Totally, you're totally right. And so, and so, the call is. Is for the church to stay in lament long enough because we don't stay in lament long. We actually never allow God to get there. We take ourselves out of lament before God even shows up. Yeah. So there's this whole aspect of God we've never interacted with because yeah. we don't stay in lament long enough for God to show up. Wow. And so th- my call is, is we need to not have a period of lament or a, a, a service of lament or even a, a month of lament, we need to have a season of lament mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it's God who changes the seasons. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so that is one of the things I'm encouraging people to do. Yeah. Another very practical thing. If you read my book, mm-hmm. the introduction of the book begins with the story of me following in the footsteps of my ancestors on my father's side, my Navajo ancestors and gaining the spiritual discipline of watching the sunrise. Yeah. I love that. And I talk about how it's beautiful when you see the sunrise on Easter morning or when you have an early flight, Yeah, but when you rise day after day, week after week, month after month, and eventually year after year, you watch the sun move from north to south. You watch the seasons come. You watch the birds migrate. You watch the seasons change. All these things, the, 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 the flowers bloom, and you see all these things happening year after year. The thing that gets impressed upon you more than anything else is that you're not in control. Mm-hmm. There is this whole thing in motion, yeah. and you are not in control. And it's actually incredibly humbling. Yeah. And depending on where you are in your understanding of God and your own awareness, possibly terrifying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? We spend our entire lives in the Western world trying to not ever be out of control. Right. Yep. 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 And so I spent 11 years on the reservation watching the sunrise, probably five or six mornings a week. 
when I moved here to DC, I had a harder time finding a place for the sun where I could see the sunrise. I live in an urban jungle and there's no yeah. tall mountains and it's hard to get anywhere I can see the sunrise. And so I slowly lost that practice in the six years I've lived here in DC. And after the presidential election, yeah, which I was hoping would bring about a more national dialogue on these issues, and that didn't happen. Right. And I realized I was searching for what do I need to do? What, what, and I was feeling kind of hopeless. Yeah. I realized again, I needed to remind myself I'm not in control. And so I went on a, a search around DC to find the best place to watch the sunrise. Mm. And I found there's a point on the Potomac River. It's about five miles from my house. takes about 20 minutes to drive there. And I can sit right at the edge of the water mm. and watch the sun come up over the river. Yeah. Beginning last January, January of 2020, I think, maybe February, I realized I'm like, I have to do something. So I began once again watching the sunrise. Mm. When I was on the res, I would take a picture every morning of the sunrise and post it to my, my social media. Yeah. I decided this time, because again, I want to have a national dialogue. I wasn't able to start it. And I thought, what do I need to do to help prep my nation for this conversation? Yeah. Well, one of the best preps I had for this work was living on the reservation and watching the sunrise. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So I've decided that I'm going to invite the nation to watch the sunrise with me. So I live stream it. I go several mornings a week and I live stream the sunrise on my my uh, my Instagram and my um, Facebook account. And then I post it to my YouTube channel. I don't give a deep analysis. I don't have these profound words of wisdom. I have a simple prayer of Thanksgiving. Mm. I have a few petitions for things going on around the world, but I'm mostly just there praising God, praising creator for the beautiful sunrise yeah, and for the promise of a new day yeah, and asking for strength to walk in beauty with the people around me. And I am, I'm inviting the nation to join me in this. And I'm doing this as a form of discipleship hmm. because this is one of the things this, the sunrise, watching the sunrise helped teach me how to be at peace while being hyper aware that I'm not in control. Right. And that's the same thing I want the nation to understand. So if I want to have this conversation about these this doctrine of discovery with my nation. Yeah. I want my nation to, to learn how to be at peace in the midst of being out of control at the same time. So I'm doing a discipleship process of live streaming the sunrises I watch and inviting people to join me. Wow. I love that. That's amazing. And actually I have seen some of those videos for the record. I see whenever you, I, I'm like, Oh, okay. And I see, I think you tweet about it too. That like you, yeah, you, you tweet I put it on my Twitter and yeah. it's on my, I put a two minute version of the sunrise on my Twitter. Um, and I, I, I have the full, it's usually a five to eight minute live stream that goes on my Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, yeah. And then I also upload that to my YouTube. Wow. And so I get about 20 or 30 people joining now, maybe 15 to 20 joining me live. 
and then another several dozen, even a few hundred watch it throughout the day. But as I've been doing it for almost a year now, it's slowly growing and getting bigger. And I'm who knows what's going to happen with it. Yeah. But it is, it's a very practical way to help prepare people to have this dialogue. The other thing that I, I do, there's a sermon I can I can share the link with you um, that I preach. And it's called The Biblical Dynamics of Power and Authority. Mm. And I look at the difference between worldly power mm. and spiritual authority. Mm. And I, I help people understand that not only the difference between the two, but how Jesus was, while he had all power and all authority, almost everything that he did in his ministry was out of his authority and not out of his power. Yeah. And the way he got authority and the way his disciples got authority was actually by laying down their power. Mm. And so I, there's a, a teaching that I give is from Mark chapter six. It's called power and authority. It's on my YouTube channel. It's on my, it's on my website, but I'll also, I'll share that link with you. Great. And it's a great way. We almost ended the book with that teaching because it's a really good way to kind of shift your paradigm yeah, yeah, so that you can engage with dealing with these incredibly systemic and yeah. very, very powerful forces yeah. of the doctrine of discovery. And we're not going to do it by just having a, a conflict of power. Right. That's just going to get everyone destroyed. So it has right. to, we have to change the paradigm yeah. and that power and authority teaching does that for people. Wow. I love all that. Um, you know, Mark, it's been like really, um, you know, it's been very insightful to have you on and to share things that I think a lot of us have been sniffing around, <laughs> but haven't like had it said so directly about, yes, this is the doctrine of discovery. This is how we kind of got here. Here's some of the big things in play. Um, you know, I've been recently getting more into history, reading stuff like Stamp from the beginning. And so, um, it's been very insightful to just to hear what you have to say as well um, and uh, kind of putting this together for us. So I appreciate you taking your time and being here. I will put all the links that you recommended in the show notes and uh, we'll do this again soon. Thank you. That sounds great. Thank you so much. One other resource I would highly recommend is sure. a, a TEDx talk that I gave called We the People, the Three Most Misunderstood Words in U.S. History. Great. And it goes through talking about how because the doctrine of discovery has become the legal precedent for land titles yeah it is so deeply ensconced in our world and in our society that people are clueless to know what to do about it and so yeah that that tedx talk is another link that i'll share with you that is a great way to kind of help people understand how deep this problem is. But is that LinkedIn uh, your website as well, wirelesshogan.com? It's on my website, but it's on my it, it's it's on it's actually on the TED website. Um oh, wow. TEDx talk, but they put it up on the TED website. Um and I'll I'll share that link with you and you can get it Perfect. out to your users as well. Right. So. Well, again, uh, Mark, thanks for coming on. Like I said, we talked about this before we recorded. We'll have to have you back on for the other topic that we didn't even touch that has blown my mind. So yeah. we'll, we'll definitely make sure we uh, it happens again. So thanks again. Appreciate it, Tim. Thank you so much. Thanks. 